0: starting the recording and uh, let me go ahead and start recording on this and start streaming on this and broadcast on that and give it a name And, okay, create broadcast and begin streaming. Creating a new live broadcast. Please wait. I don't want to wait. We've been over this and over this and over this. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. All right. I moved us over a skosh. See if I can do anything else there. And that looks good. And uh, I rebuilt my um, broadcast software so that now I can see us on Skype the problem was before you. there are multiple versions of Skype that you can run on your computer mm-hmm. one is the quote unquote desktop version and the other one is the Windows store version okay. um, so yeah I, I had to narrow it down so that I was only using one because the program can't tell the difference oh okay Um, So, here we are, and uh, it's actually on there, so, um, you know, oh, we have someone in the chat room, so I guess we could start, so let's uh, do the wing-ding thing here. Good evening, and welcome to the beautiful Historical Marionette Theater. This evening, we're going to be visiting a film about the distant future where Things aren't so bright and cheerful, in fact, it's a little dusty and dirty and we can't really see the sun, but we know there'll be a tomorrow, like Annie sang about. Grab your seats, the show is about to begin! Hey, good evening and welcome, welcome everyone! We are uh, firmly ensconced in the throes of uh, the heat wave. It's summer, and here we are on a Friday night. Toppy, yeah. did, did uh, you did you put your drawers in the freezer again? <laughs>
1: I should have, but uh, I'll tell you what. When when you have to record and you have to turn your fan off, <laughs> boy, boy, that's, that's a rough one. I, um, <laughs> I am suffering right now. But uh, for some reason, uh, I shouldn't have my fan on, so...
0: Well, I mean, if Gertie would have paid the electric bill, maybe we could have our fans on. Uh, She had to ask for that raise. Oh, well, I guess we uh, have to account for the uh, fancier outfits that she's been wearing of late. And, uh, you know, I hope that she scores herself uh, another... um, Oh, what do they call them these days? I don't want to say a sugar daddy, but uh, a a well-to-do gentleman caller, let's just say. Uh So uh, uh, here's hoping uh, Gertie does well in the dating scene because someone's got to pay these bills. Anyways, it was recently Independence Day, the 4th of July. Did uh, your neighbors cause a ruckus with some of those blowing off things?
1: No, actually, it's usually my father that does that. And uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't been well enough the past few years to, uh, to get fireworks and set them off. But he used to love uh, going to Pennsylvania and buying, like, all these fireworks. And then we'd invite people over and have hot dogs. And we'd all sit in the front yard and watch these things go off. And, of course, I'm sure... Many neighbors hated us uh, for doing that and, uh, you know, frankly, I don't miss it. Uh, I'm, I'm with the vets and I'm with the pets and I don't care so much about all the noise uh, and fireworks because I think it upsets a lot of people a lot of vets and i think it upsets a lot of pets and i think
2: we could do about it
0: oh yes i totally agree you know um i don't have much experience with the fireworks because up until recent years they really weren't legal in the U- in uh, new york state uh, it was just a handful of years ago that they allowed sparklers and things more ambitious but I remember going to visit my sister and brother-in-law, who was in the service at the time in North Carolina, and that was one of the first times I remember playing with fireworks. Now, my brother, he was he, he uh, ran with the, the wrong crowd, so of course he how, knew how to use a lighter. And, uh, well, I tried my hand at it when I was about 12 years old, and, um, well, my thumb had seen better days, because if you aren't in a habit, so to speak, you're not very uh, hand-eye-coordinated with those things. <laughs> right. Oh, so yeah. my neighbors shot off a, few, uh, a fair amount of things, but fortunately our older kiddos um, aren't as uh, easily rustled uh, about those things, thankfully. I, I recall not that long ago when um, one of them would cower and hide under the bed, So, all right, well, um, you know, aside from that, uh, our senior showgirl is anxious to get going here because, well, she's got an early night, and uh, we just want to let the folks know about what we're going to talk about tonight. So, Gertie, could you get down to the stage for me?
1: Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for you to stop flapping your gums. All right, I'm going down.
0: Oh, there she goes. And here we go.
1: Bill is a survivor. His childhood experience with a plane crash led him to a career in air flight safety. One day, while coasting through his usual routine of briefings and meetings, he encounters a face from his past. A beautiful woman masquerading as a flight attendant seemed strangely familiar. The days ahead are spent reliving his memories and trying to solve a mystery. Had he met her before or was it kismet? Grab a flashlight and a pair of gloves. We're searching wreckage. It's time for Millennium with Chris Kristofferson and Cheryl Ladd. Take it away, fellas.
0: What do you get when you take a dash to the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies. And a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Ooh, alrighty, so we're talking about a, uh, well, a sci-fi thriller here tonight, folks. Uh, you know, I tried to put myself in the mood for this film, Toppy, and uh, I typed the word dystopian into my, my music service, and well... All of the music that I ended up listening to, well, it seemed like those artists were afraid of turning their computers on after the holidays at the wow. millennium. <laughs> wow. okay. uh, so you know, if you if you're not sure what that word dystopian means is that uh, it's a it's a bleak future. things don't turn out so right. By the way, if uh, you are so inclined to check us out on YouTube tonight, I'm uh, joining you from a hotel lobby, and why is that? Well, just like tonight's film, I was told that if I came here, I would meet a beautiful woman from the future, but alas, when I checked into the hotel room, there was just an ashtray with a lit cigarette, so I, I guess uh-huh. I just missed her. I. Uh-huh. So, um, this film took place in 1989, and that was more than a couple of decades ago. Toppy, what do we normally do? Well, why don't you talk about 1989, around the U.S. and our history. Okay. U.S. history in 1989. Los Angeles City Council bans the sale or possession of semi-automatic weapons. Hmm, I wonder if that stood. Unemployment drops to 5%, and it's the lowest since 1973. In 89, sunspot activity caused an outage of a Quebec-based hydroelectric dam. No, I didn't swear. It's, you know, one of those things that traps water. And it's leaving 6 million people without power for 9 hours back in 89. And the first time a privately owned rocket had orbited a payload was in 89. It launched a TV satellite. (laughs) Congress passed legislation to raise the minimum wage from get this folks $3.35 to $4.25 an hour over time up until 1991 and well we'll leave it up to um our uh economists to tell us if that's a you know a sliding scale or not so all right toppy in 1989 there's a few people that came into the world who are contributing to the walk of fame who came into the world 1989
1: well, you've got your uh, Chord or Chord, but please, uh, parents, uh, don't name your kid Chord. Oh, it's Hopefully a... it's pronounced Chord.
0: It is. <laughs> okay,
1: thank you. Cord Overstreet. He's an actor from the TV show Glee. Also Tyler Oakley. He's a musician you can see on YouTube. And also Jason Derulo. He's an urban uh, musician
0: in rhythm and blues. Oh, wow. Gertie knows who that is very much. I heard her getting down before the show to some of his tunes. Oh, I bet, I bet. is a, <laughs> a fan. She's a fan. Uh, I heard,
1: uh, about Millennium mm-hmm. in the theaters, what was it competing
0: with? Alrighty, so Millennium was a film. It was released to theaters, it was on the silver screen, as we say. And it was released in the summer of 89. It was in August. And uh, the top of the box office that year includes the number one film is Batman with Michael Keaton. It brought in $251 million. And then uh, a film with Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. No, you're you're, you're not having a flashback. There was one that came out this year with Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones and the last crusade. Well, spoiler alert, it wasn't the last. Uh, And number three that year was Lethal Weapon 2 with Mr. Twinfoil Hat, Mr. Mel Gibson. And Danny Glover brought in uh, $197 I believe. So uh, Millennium, uh, well, it wasn't uh, you know at the bottom. It wasn't at the top. Somewhere in the middle, it was number 115. Brought in 5.7 million. So it at least paid for Cheryl Ladd's Aquanet. And one better than uh, Millennium that year was a film with Glenn Close and James Woods called Immediate Family. It brought in 5.9 million. And it was an adoption story with a reluctant birth mother. And it was actually an early film for, um, I believe, Mary Louise Parker that was later in the Fried Green Tomatoes movies. Um, let's see now. Also in that year, one less than Millennium, was a film that brought in $5.5 million. It was called Dream a Little Dream. It had Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, so the Coreys and one of my favorite actors, Jason Robards. Now, I have not seen this film. It's, um, well, some say it was a dud, but I'm curious to watch it just simply because I have an affinity for James Jason Robards, as I said. But this was an, about an accident that puts the consciousness of an elderly dream researcher into the body of a bratty teenager. The problem, the kid prefers dream world limo to real life, so... It was a a body-swapping story, which was uh, quite popular in that time frame, done several times. We're going to listen to the trailer for this film. Are you ready, Toppy? Awesome. Play that trailer. All right. This is what you would have seen if you were the movie-going sort in the late 80s. And remember, this was a summer movie, so it might have been date night. DOA 35 Heavy, could you give me your location?
1: Minneapolis, we are currently heading 0 3 turn to heading.
2: My God. Jesus, down. Go down. For flight 35. We're going down. It was the end.
1: Do not be afraid. Or was it?
2: Walk towards the light.
1: What unusual facts have you developed in your investigation? <laughs> this crash has been crazy from the start is there anything odd going backwards i'm afraid i still don't know what you're driving at i'm simply looking for the inexplicable i usually find it
2: you're endangering a project that's bigger than you can imagine
0: i know damn well we can't change
1: the past travelers. You don't want to be found. Then you are from the future.
2: About a thousand years. Sherman, send the gate. Once in a
1: thousand years comes an adventure like this. We've been expecting
0: you, Millennium. Ooh, there were airplanes, and there were explosions, and time travel, and. Before we continue, if you could just check your settings.
1: So we're going to talk about the director, and his name is Michael Anderson. He was born in 1920. Uh, English film director, best known for directing the World War II film *The Dambusters* in 55. That wonderful movie *Around the World in 80 Days* in 56, and. The dystopian sci-fi film *Logan's Run* in '76. The guy's been around and telling stories for a long time, and he knows how to tell a story. He uh, was in World War II, uh, but once he uh, and, and when he was in the British Army Royal Signal Corps, he met Peter Ustinov, of all people. And after the war, Peter Ustinov uh, gave. Um, Michael Anderson some of his first big jobs and uh, first as a production runner and then later as an assistant director and then later as a full director so he was very lucky to meet up with Peter Ustinov and a couple of the projects they worked on was School for Secrets in 46 Vice Versa in 47 and uh, then together Anderson and Ustinov uh, worked and uh, wrote and directed Private Angelo in 49. They did that together. Uh, in, uh, in 1950, Anderson made his solo directorial debut with a B-movie called Waterfront in 1950, not On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. It was a different movie simply called Waterfront. It starred Robert Newton and Richard Burton, And then he went on to direct many more small B-movies. It's how he trained, how he got to uh, be as skilled as he was. Um, Later on, he wound up making five films, um, the third of which was his big breakthrough. It was a war film called The Dam Busters, starring Richard Todd, which was the, the most popular movie at the British box office in 1955. Uh, After that came Around the World in 80 Days, another huge, huge hit. By the way, Around the World in 80 Days uh, uh, got Anderson nominated for an Academy Award for director. Um, He didn't win it, but the film did win Best Picture. Um, However, Anderson did win the Golden Globe for his direction. So what do people do when they find success? Well, they go to Hollywood. And when he did, he got there and he directed The Wreck of the Married Deer in 59. That was Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston. And through the 60s, Anderson went on making movies. You might know some of them, all the fine young cannibals, 1960, The Naked Edge, The Flight from a Shia, which was an adventure tale, and Wild and Wonderful, a comedy with Tony Tony Curtis. In the 70s, Anderson is known for films such as The Devil's Impostor, Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze. You know, you know who was (laughs) Doc Savage? Ron Eli, who was Tarzan for a couple, three seasons on TV. Mm. Ron Eli was a handsome man to look at. That's all I got (laughs) to say. He also did Conduct Unbecoming. And in 76, well, probably the movies most well known for, it was the super expensive box office success. Logan's Run mm-hmm. in 76 but he followed that up he followed that movie up in 1977 with a movie I love oh my god it's such a guilty pleasure it's called Orca oh my god it's a Jaws ripoff <laughs> d- 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 and and I love it Orca in 1977 and he did Dominique in 78 uh, after that he moved to Canada and directed mostly Canadian made for TV series which included The Martian Chronicles in 1980, Sea Wolf in 93, Captain's Courageous in 96, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 97. In 2012, Michael Anderson received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Directors Guild of Canada, and that's Michael Anderson.
0: Oh, and I do believe he lived to the ripe age of 98, Toppy.
1: Yes, indeedy, and uh, let me just make
0: sure, when did he die? He
1: died in 2018.
0: Yes, sir. All right, well, so in a moment, we're going to step over here to the snack bar, because we're getting close to the the middle of the hour, but I'm going to go ahead and start off talking about uh, the leading man of tonight's film, uh, he's uh, Mr. Chris Christopherson, and, uh, you know, he's no stranger to stealing the scene because, uh, well, a few years before, he was the uh, the uh, gentleman on the arm of Babs, Barbra Streisand, and A Star is Born, her version. Now, Mr. Christopherson played uh, the character of Bill Smith in Millennium. He was the survivor of a crash, and this is how he came to know, uh, so to speak, the, uh, the lady in this film. Christopherson was born in South Texas. He was on the border town of Brownsville. His father was a U.S. Air Force general, so, you know, the bar was set pretty high by Dad. And as a result, his family had a very transient life. By the mid-50s, his family had moved to San Mateo, which is a town south of San Francisco. An aspiring writer, Christopherson, attended Pomona College. There he graduated with a bachelor's in literature. The summer before enrolling at college, he took a job in the South Pacific as a dredging contractor at Wake Island. Talk about some manual labor. Now, before trying his hand as a songwriter, yeah, that was the next chapter of his life, Christopherson was in the military. He joined the army. Because, you know, like most military kids, they go into the branch that uh, their folks weren't in. And uh, he joined the army. So where he would eventually achieve the rank of captain and became a skilled helicopter pilot. After ending his tour of duty in Germany, he was offered a position teaching English literature at West Point. But he turned it down. He's uh, getting a track record there for uh, doing things that uh, he's not expected to. And it was in favor of pursuing music. And he moved to Nashville at that point in his life. There he would meet Johnny Cash while working at a cleaning job at a recording studio. Hey, Toppy, have you uh, tried to sell some of your songs? (laughs) Yeah, you know. uh, Every
1: once in a while I I get a chance, but... uh...
0: Uh, Not too much attention. I I think that David Duchovny um, owes you some money for the Red Shoe Diaries. (laughs) Right. Right. After trying to interest Cash in some of his music, within a few years, Christopherson would land a helicopter in (laughs) his yard with a beer in his hand. And uh, it would be a decade before Christopherson would give up alcohol, but not before he would date Janis Joplin, of all people. Imagine having that on your, uh, you know, little black book. Christopherson (laughs) began acting in the early 70s, because, you know, he was trying his hand at everything. Now, Millennium was his 19th film. He was no stranger to appearing in front of the camera. And his film just before this, get this, He was in Big Top Pee-Wee. He was one of the animal trainers. He was a a wrangler. And in the five years before, Christopherson would appear in three films, including Flashpoint in 84 with Treat Williams, who we, of course, just recently lost to a motorcycle accident. And he was also in, an uh, 84, Songwriter with Willie Nelson and Rip Torn. Toppy, I want to see this movie now. I never knew it existed before. And it also has Melinda Dillon, Toppy. That's ah. the mom from the first Christmas story movie. Okay. <laughs> in 85, he was in a film with Keith Carradine and Jean Vieve. Yes, Jean Vieve. I learned that. From Star Trek, how to pronounce her name. Jean-Viev Beaujol, who was also the first Captain Janeway, but that never flew. And our favorite drag queen on film, Divine. We did Lust wow. in the Dust last year. So this was Trouble in Mind in 85. Now, in the five years after Millennium, Christopher or Christopherson would appear in six films, including in 89 with Joe Beth Williams, Sam Watterson, and Brian Keith, you know, from that uh, family affairs show he was in a film called welcome home and in 1990 he was in a film with dean stockwell you know the everybody's favorite hologram from um uh what what was that show uh where the guy traveled Uh, jumping places
1: (laughs) skipping around Uh. um
0: scott Bakula was in it yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, Dean Stockwell in 1990 was in a movie with Chris Christopherson. And then in 92, uh, Christopherson was in a film with Drew Barrymore, Martin Landau, and O.J. Simpson, of all people. No place to hide. Now I'm not uh-huh. sure if this took place around the time of that that little court trial. But anyways... Uh, Christopherson has in more recent years retired from acting which was announced in 2021 and in the last five years of his film uh, career Christopherson appeared in 11 films which included uh, a series of western themed productions uh, with one being called Hickok about uh, Wild Bill and it was with uh, Luke Hemsworth yes one of the the pretty boys uh, the Hemsworth brothers Uh, Also was in a film called Lawless Range with Bo Bridges. And his last film appearance, um, you know, it's apropos because it was directed by Ethan Hawke, the, the 90s star that was in all those grunge films, including Reality Bites. Well, Ethan Hawke directed Chris Christopherson's last movie, called blaze in 2018 and it was a reimagining of the life and times of blaze foley the unsung songwriting legend of the texas outlaw music movement and mm. upon retiring he had 120 acting credits to his name now with a name like blaze foley though it sounds like a uh, a made-up name like when garth brooks decided to be a pop artist um Anyways, <laughs> all right, we are out here at the snack bar where uh Gertie is serving up some treats. Uh, hey, now that's a dirty ashtray, don't try to give me a uh, paper umbrella in that. Ew. That's gross. <laughs> that was really uh, So, um, you know, uh, it was quite a while ago now that uh, Millennium came out. And uh, since it wasn't a box office smash, there really weren't any interviews that I could find from the cast. So this is an interview with the director, the famed Michael Anderson, that Toppy spoke about and he's talking about some of his favorite directorial jobs, including Logan's run. Have a okay. listen.
2: Meanwhile, I was working on what was to be one of the most complex technical pictures and the biggest picture had made, MGM had made for many, many years, uh, particularly the thing called carousel. Carousel was a device where the story was that you lived until the age of 30, the age of 30, you surrendered, you went to carousel, and in a ceremony, you were killed, you died. But if you could reach, you were were transported up towards the ceiling of carousel, where if you reached the top, the ring at the top and touched it, you would be renewed. Your life would be spared, you would be renewed. And so the goal was, uh, hope springs eternal was the theme. In other words, even when you're sentenced to death, if you can reach that ring, then you, you, you can survive. Um, in fact, in the story, you realize later that there was no eternal life, there was no ring, and no one had ever had ever touched it. And so it was merely a way of inducing the, the people to accept the possibility, accept death, but accept the possibility that there was life to come uh, in a society that had everything. It was the land of pleasure, the land of joy. The catch was that you died at 30. And so, to build Carousel, they decided to open the tank at MGM, where I had shot the wreck of the Meridier, and put huge engines in that would turn the turntable, that would bring people around and rotate the top at the same time and put strings in or wires in that would pull the people up. And the idea was that uh, 20 or 30 people at a time would ride around like a merry-go-round, on, on wires which had to be invisible because it, it, w- it should look like gravitation. The wires would be invisible. And, and turn at the same time all on hydraulics. It was a, an engineering feat of of some magnitude. In fact, at one time they thought that the floor at MTM, even the floor beneath the, the, the tank would collapse, would, would be too heavy, would, wouldn't be heavy enough to, to support it. And this and other technical things were going on, costume designs, makeup, makeup, hair, uh, the building of uh, of um, other sets and the choosing of locations. Um, And the film started shooting. And again, it was incredible to be back in the saddle at MGM on the old Stage 30. In fact, at one point, Stage 30 was opened and joined with Stage 29 because Stage 30 wasn't big enough for the Ice Palace set, which they built. So it took up two sets. And so it was on a a scale and a magnitude that really was was very, very lavish. And it felt incredible to have again uh, all this this great uh, technical advice and uh, these these marvelous technicians at, uh, at at my disposal. And that was the way I made the film.
0: Okay, talked a few times about the fact that our little journey here about film and television trivia started. With a little talk about a film called Barbarella. And of course, uh, it's no secret that uh, old dad, he, uh, well, he had the eyes for Jane Fonda. And uh, if you weren't uh, on the fence about Millennium, you certainly went to see it for Cheryl Ladd. Because she was the star, besides Mr. Christofferson. She had the big hair and she'd come to us fresh from the decade before on Charlie's Angels. Tuppy, tell us a bit about Cheryl Ladd, if you will.
1: Well, okay. Um, it's hard to follow Chris Christopherson, you know, what with his uh, being in the Army and, you know, um, uh, meeting Johnny Cash and being a helicopter pilot and uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, dating Janice Joplin. Okay, it's hard It's hard to outdo that. And in fact, Cheryl Ladd <clears throat> doesn't outdo it at all. <laughs> okay, we're we're going to take a step back. Uh, so Cheryl Ladd, bless her little heart, born in 1951 in South Dakota. She wanted to sing. Yep, she wanted to sing. And so she began a career in music. And uh, this is uh, by the time she was in, uh, uh, by the time it was after high school, she traveled around with a band locally uh, called The Music Shop. And she played in venues in the Midwest. uh, But eventually she settled in where all young girls who are pretty Mm. settle Hollywood. Los Angeles, and she was there to uh, jumpstart her career in music, and she did land a gig as the voice of Melody on Hanna-Barbera's Josie and the Pussycats Hmm. animated series, and she also sang on the 1970 album of the same name, (laughs) but uh, she soon began to land non-singing roles. In commercials and episodic television. And these would be shows like The Rookies, The Partridge Family, Policewoman, The Muppet Show, Search. Well, Search was like a one-season deal. I don't know Mm why. Anyways, also Happy Days. And uh, in 1977, well, it's her big break where she replaced uh, Farrah Fawcett majors on Charlie's Angels and remained part of the cast for the next four seasons until the show's cancellation in June of 1981. And uh, she took advantage of of her newfound fame, which she did get from Charlie's Angels, to promote her music career. And uh, she guest starred in a musical comedy variety series series. And specials wherever she could. Back then, they were still a thing. Uh, She performed at the National Anthem at the Super Bowl in January 1980. Um, I'm sorry. She performed the National Anthem at the Super Bowl in 1980. And, uh, And she released three albums. And by the way, you know, well, she had a top 40 Billboard Hot 100 single. And a gold record, so I don't know. Uh, f- so <laughs> she eventually became a familiar face after Charlie's Angels on televisions because she made more than 30, count them 30, made for television oh. films. Yes, indeedy. Uh, for example, uh, oh, she also eventually had the lead role in the television series One West Wa- Waikiki. <laughs> In 94 to 96, don't know a goddamn thing about that. She made uh, lots of guest appearances on other TV shows like Charmed, Hope and Faith, CSI Miami. And uh, then she did uh, a little character called uh, Jillian DeLine, and that was from a TV show uh, called Las Vegas. And she played the wife of the lead character uh, portrayed by James Caan, and that ran for 29 episodes. So um, after that, guess what? Wouldn't believe it, but Alan Ladd headed. Alan Ladd, did you hear <laughs> what I just said? Very okay. different person. Very different person. Uh, Ladd, Cheryl Ladd uh, uh, headed on over to Broadway. Believe it or not. And she took over the title role from Bernadette Peters in a revival of Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun. Oh. And she stayed with the role for about a year. And uh, then she went on to appear in in TV productions all over the place. Uh, A hallmark movie called Love's Everlasting Courage. Um, and just well, I don't know, but, and then it's NCIS episode and a television series called Chuck. Um, and her film roles, uh, not many, uh, but here they are. She did uh, in the movies Purple Hearts in 1984, Our Movie Tonight Millennium in 89. She did Poison Ivy in 92, Permanent Midnight in 98, and. Unforgettable in 2017. Oh. There you go. That's
0: Cheryl. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, uh, yeah, she she practically invented the uh, the Lifetime Channel before its time. I'm sure she's got some stories to tell.
1: Uh, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you know, when you've got a cast like we have here in Millennium, where you've got two leading roles by two well-known people, it's hard to decide on who else should share the spotlight. Now, as the story goes, it would be easy to talk about the scientist that the uh, lead character, Bill Smith, runs into when things, uh, well, they all fall apart. But that would be too easy. And, you know, we try to do the unexpected here. So I'm going to talk about Cheryl Ladd's character's boss from the future. This is a man that's called Sherman, and uh, he looks a little bit like Beetlejuice. He's, uh, you know, sun bleached, and his hair has seen better days, and he's in a wheelchair. And uh, Sherman was played by Robert Joy. Now, Robert Joy is a Canadian actor. And he was born in Montreal, Quebec. His father was a physician turned politician. He was elected to an office which is basically the equivalent to a state senate here in the U.S. Joy's big break was when he was cast opposite Madonna. Can you imagine one of your first film roles being cast with Madonna? How do you go from there? he was he was cast as her punk boyfriend in her breakout film in 85 Desperately Seeking Susan. Now in 98 so you know within a decade he appeared in a film called Fallen where he fit into an all-star cast that included Denzel Washington, Donald Sutherland and the uh the star of HBO's Sopranos James Gandolfini and of course the uh the dad from Roseanne John Goodman. A super
1: creepy film, folks, if you haven't seen Fallen with Denzel Washington. Ooh,
0: mm. ooh, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Now, in 2005, Robert Joy had a leading role as the simple minded sharpshooter Charlie Ho in George Romero's zombie film Land of the Dead. So if you're a fan of horror films, you possibly know who Mr. Joy is. Now, in the fall of 2005, Joy joined the CBS, you know, the big brother the Eyeball Network there, uh, police procedural series, CSI, which, you know, has a million different spin Of course. Every goddamn actor that's what if what if you're an
1: actor in the U.S. today and you don't have a credit with CSI or one of those procedurals, <laughs> you ain't nobody. I don't know. It's,
0: I, it's I awesome. mean, I hear that Gertie had a walk-on role as, as a dead lady on the sidewalk, and you know yeah. that one season, but they they didn't pay her because she didn't have a speaking part. But right. anyways, so in two thousand or so in CSI New York. During its second season, he joined as a recurring character, Dr. Sid Hammerback. What a name. He was the chief medical examiner and became a main character in season five. Okay, so this is the guy who gets to on-screen eat his lunch while they're playing with the dead body, basically. Okay. So in 2006, Joy appeared on screen in Alexander Aha's remake of The Hills Have Eyes A very creepy film where he portrays a mutant named Lizard. So, you know, a person that's been deformed named Lizard. He also starred as Ted Bedworth, which was father of Samir Armstrong's character Nell Bedworth in the 2006 romantic comedy It's a Boy Girl Thing. And in 2007, Joy played the character of Colonel Stevens in... Aliens versus Predator Requiem Requiem. So, you know, something of Ridley Scott's universe there. And he appeared as Dr. Stephen Hawking in the comedy film in 2008 superhero movie. So, he's he's done some odd things and some interesting things. Now, Joy has had an ongoing stage engagement on Broadway and throughout the US most recently appearing as Charles in King Charles III at Shakespeare Theatre Company in D.C. Uh, That was uh, from February to March in 2017. So, you know, telling the future a little. And uh, as Crito and the poet Miletus in Socrates in the public theatre in New York, which ran from... April to June in 2019, so it sounds a little uh, Shakespeare, if you will, some uh, formal theater there. So, you know, uh, we have a, another rare opportunity here. Um, the uh, The uh, old lights haven't uh, burned out yet, and the uh, Uber hasn't arrived, so let's talk about this movie, Toppy. W- did you see this in the theater? No, no, no. I don't remember this <laughs> at all.
1: Uh, I, I think most places it came and went Uh, I'm sure as a result of the resurgence uh, in popularity of sci-fi things due to Star Wars uh, it's why this came to be Uh, it was a book at first and um, before it became a movie it was one of those projects that was handed off and off and on and for like five years before Anderson finally made it, um, uh, it, 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 it it's low budget. But I gotta say, uh, in spite of that fact, uh, what you see on screen is pretty top-notch quality stuff. Uh, there's a lot of pyrotechnics, very uh, their practical effects. This is long before CGI. And it's all rather convincing. I give you the, the major set pieces. Uh, there's nothing wrong with them. They look great. The, the, the portions of the movie where they're going through uh, a field at night uh, of a plane crash, it don't get better than that. It looks fantastic. So in spite of their low budget... Uh, the people there had the, the know how to make this stuff look really, really good. And uh, 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 that's all I got to say about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story, well, listen, it's a story about time travel. And when isn't a story about time travel confusing? Mm-hmm. Well, never. Uh, and this story, well, it starts out as a legit mystery. Uh Christopherson has to figure out what happened to this plane and the passengers and why it went down and it It starts out as a true mystery and And we know we have very few answers as we start to watch, and I feel like it does a great job in drawing us into the mystery we We really want to know. What the hell is going on? Because not everything is as it seems. So I feel like it draws you in really nice. Uh, I think there's a problem eventually when we ha- we see a, a good 20 minutes of the movie through Christopherson's character. And then because of the time change, we see the exact same scenes for another 20 minutes <laughs> all over again but this time it's from Cheryl Ladd's perspective that's you know not great choices not great choices they could have they could have done this and not literally repeated the scenes over at any rate there are problems like that uh, but uh but it's got a rousing finish and, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot in this movie that, that strikes true today because a lot of the message of this movie is how uh, present, the present world totally effed up the future with pollution and uh, the future is pretty terrible. And, uh, the time travelers are trying to fix things by going into the past to get basically sperm donors, to be honest. And, uh, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, and at the end, uh, there's a slight bright spot because we're given, we're given to believe that Christopherson and Sherwad, uh, are flung into the far future, which is a, a much better place, um, and, uh, you know, maybe there's hope. So it ends with a, a note of hope. But, um, on the whole, you know, for a low budget movie, ain't bad. Uh, time travel, complicated, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but,
1: uh, not too bad. Not too bad.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I would of course say that, uh, this came out when I was just a little, little tyke, um but I, I recall this actually might have been one of few films that my father actually rented he went, went to the video store and rented oh. cuz you know i've said it once or twice dad uh, was usually outdoors and unless it was the uh, the colder time of year when he couldn't be outdoors we didn't have those movie channels some people got later on in the 80s and 90s on cable. So that's saying something. The The pretty lady that had been in Charlie's Angels was in this movie. So, of course, Dad was going to go to the video store and, uh, you know, possibly expose the impressionable mind of uh, his uh, young son. And, oh, yeah. and, you know, maybe he'd see the pretty lady in the movie and, uh, you know... I, I I would choose my path, but ah, well, I just wanted hair like her. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but she uh, has a lot of different hairstyles
1: in this movie because she jumps around in time. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's like one scene of her in that when she's back in the future where she's got that uh, total nineties. You know, rock and look with her. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, that up to that kind of reminds yeah. you of uh, Tina Turner in Thunderdome. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, the, the one thing that I'll say about many time travel films is that they actually lend themselves to rewatches because, of course, a time travel story is going to be about retracing your steps and maybe making decisions. That affects an outcome. So, you, I, after having watched it before, seeing it as an adult, it makes more sense now when Louise, who is Cheryl Ladd's character, is told that she needs to go back because, minor spoiler, they have these devices that render people unconscious. They call them just a stunner. Um, it uh, it basically looks like what people have these days like the electronic cigarettes the vaping machines you yeah. know you could you hold it in the palm of your hand um but one of her crew w- dropped theirs on the aircraft because there was a uh an armed person on board a terrorist so that person uh, made a sacrifice and they they dropped their their device well that's a big no-no because you can't leave evidence of the future they will find it in present day the the whole idea is that they are essentially rescuing these people who would have otherwise been victims people who would have died in a plane crash and the reason they're doing this is because we're not going to look in places where people aren't going to be missed They're expected to be dead. And to quote Cheryl Ladd's character, Louise, we're very good at what we do because they are able to match people's dental records and fingerprints with their doubles and replace them with, uh, you know, basically the dead. So these people have a second chance at life because they've been, pardon the term, snatched from the moment where they would have died, and now they're put in the future where people from Louise's time have lost the ability to have their own children because of the terrible things we have done to the planet and to ourselves. And that's part of that hopeful message, is that they're being flung into the far future when everything goes wrong and everything's going to be um, self-destructed to... Uh, you know, eliminate their, their, uh, well, basically a paradox is caused. They're sent into the far future to escape the explosion. And I was reading Toppy. This is one of those things where when a film is released in countries throughout the world, sometimes there are different scenes available in other countries because maybe uh, we aren't as strict about uh, language or nudity and apparently there's a alternate ending in some of the copies released overseas where uh, Louise and Bill end up in sort of a Garden of Eden setting. And I haven't seen it, but I have to wonder if it might be uh, au naturel.
1: <laughs> possibly. Possibly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I want to uh, say hats off to Chris Christopherson. I think he played a totally believable character. He's a man that has no life because he's given his all to his job, which is air safety. Uh, he hasn't had a, a relationship of any note for years. He's pretty miserable personally, but he's really good at his job and people respect him. And it's just about all he has. Um, and so when the, when Cheryl Ed's character, Louise, comes to him, um, it becomes a moment for him to redeem his humanity and uh, actually make a, a personal connection with this woman. And Chris Christopherson, if he can't play haggard <laughs> and tired, he can't play nothing. No. I mean, he's super good at haggard and tired, and he does a great job in this. Um, And um, so I think he's the the best thing in terms of acting about this movie. There's some interesting choices when they portray the future. Apparently, uh, most people are a combination of cyborg. Um, A lot of them have mechanical parts that have replaced their natural body parts. Some of them are seem to be you know much more full on robotic although i I think they're androids or something mm-hmm. and uh that's kind of interesting um uh, there's no villains there that's that's what's interesting
0: um I think humanity is kind of the villain because we you know we've made all these poor choices that have made the future bleak. So we've done this to ourselves.
1: Yeah. And the people of the future, well, they're, they're just basically trying to save their own asses and they come across time travel. Uh, And, and of course they, they're aware of creating um, paradoxes, but they create them anyways. And that sends shockwaves through the future we sort of see them as earthquakes, and eventually it's the end of them um, because they have one too many paradoxes uh, in a row, uh, and uh, and it seems to be seems to look like the people that are that make it through the the last deadly paradox is Chris Christopherson and Cheryl Ladd as they're flung into a, a far, f- far future, where presumably they they live uh, their best lives after that, maybe in the Garden of Eden.
0: Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, uh, you know, not too much unlike um, Logan's Run, but uh, of course it's by the same director, so why wouldn't yeah, it have you know a what? similar image? Yeah, you know what? I get. I I, I think
1: Logan's Run and and Millennium have a lot of the same problems and a lot of the great things going for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Logan's run is, is made a lot of money, but it's not exactly the greatest movie ever made. And neither is millennium, but they both have enough that I think they're worth watching.
0: Mm-hmm. Now I was going to ask Toppy, and it's not a very, um, a big moment on screen, but after, after, having watched this movie a couple of times, you, you pick up on little things, because as I was saying, that's the beauty of a time travel story is that you retrace your steps, literally, and, you know, purposefully. But there, there's a moment in the film after that first 20 minutes where we start to learn more about the reality that Louise comes from. And she has a pet. She has an animal that we get to see for a brief moment. Do you remember that particular scene? Good Lord, no. Oh, it's very charming because in its own very brief moment, it gives you an idea of the bleakness of that future because she has a bird that's in a cage and she goes to feed it, but it literally has an airlock for her to be able to provide it food with so that it's sanitary before it reaches the bird inside. So I have to wonder if this is not a creature that she rescued from her own time because it wouldn't exist there, That this is something that she got on one of her visits to the past and she preserved it because it's the only... Um, specimen that she has of that hopeful time. So she okay. she even talks uh, to it when she feeds it. She says, Polly, want a chemical-free sterilized cracker? <laughs> oh, well, What the hell? I must have blinked and missed it. Oh, it uh, is totally also, a blink moment, but yeah. Yeah. Although, uh,
1: there's this weird... Stuff when Louise goes back in time and she's chain smoking in front of Chris Christopherson, (laughs) who who constantly says you smoke too much. (laughs) And uh, I I didn't get it really until someone else um, talked about it on on another show. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And uh, so apparently, the reason her character was chain smoking in the past is that her body was used to pollution. And the only way she could exist in the past was to have an approximate same amount of pollution. And that's why she was smoking. Apparently, she may not have done very well if she hadn't been, you know. Smoking. It's not really explained, but Mm -hmm. that's apparently what that whole smoking bit was
0: about. Oh, well, you know, I I will only mention one other moment in the film, topic because I found it to be the most hysterical, physical comedy moment in the whole film. And that's the moment when Bill and uh, Louise are out at the restaurant. And actually, it's one of those moments where he mentions that she's, uh, you know, smoking too much. Because, of course, she has to repeat that line. You know, I'm going to quit, or this is my last one. Do, do you remember what happened in the restaurant when he uh, talked to her about her smoking? That well, she just tossed it. Oh, she
1: my God. Cigarette. <laughs> she was so used Over to it. Over a balcony or something.
0: <laughs> yes, in her future, they are so used to the people on their... their um you know, their their mission teams smoking that they have a system, kind of like a, you know, kind of like a a fire system that puts things out. But... Just a laser. It detects a lit cigarette and it puts it out. Like, just zap. And so she's so used to that from her reality. She's out of place in her mind that she's in the past. She just throws a lit cigarette into the restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, so... So there's a lot of
1: what's going on here moments oh. that you don't really understand until later. And I have to say that the chemistry between Lad and, and Christopherson is pretty good. And uh, you kind of believe uh, that they're falling in love or something, something important is happening between the two of them. So I think that's, you
0: know, it's not great, but it's okay. And the la- the last thing I will say about the rewatching part is that it helps you to understand some scenes. Because this is, you know, this is still the 80s. It's not the 90s yet. But when Cheryl Ladd's character first runs into uh, Chris Kristofferson's character, when they're having the meeting and they're reviewing the recording tape from the plane that crashed... She is just sort of nervous because she's been asked to serve coffee to the group. And now you're you're led to believe that this is just a woman who is, you know, over the moon seeing this attractive guy. And she's just, you know, doesn't know what to say. But that's not at all what happened. She, in fact, is terrified because... She knows she's seen this guy before or thinks she's seen this guy before, and she's afraid of causing problems in her future. So, of course, you know, uh, giving away the scene, she ends up leaving in a rush like somebody's avoiding an ex or something it's it's just one of the things that makes this movie something that you should watch at least a couple of times just to understand why the scenes are the way they are because there's a reason she reacts to seeing him she's not turned on by him she's aghast because oh no what if he remembers me does he know who i am yeah, the core
1: of the movie is really a mystery. Uh, it's a mystery what happened to the plane. It's a mystery of uh, this Louise lady. What, what's her deal? And um, when we see scenes of the future, of Louise in the future, it's again a mystery to us. Nothing is explained. We, all, we find things out later. Uh, they have the two parallel stories, one after another, from... Christofferson's point of view, and then from Ladd's point of view, and we're just sitting there going, what does this mean? It's a mystery. And I think they carry the mystery off pretty good, and it keeps you interested. Until you find out. And uh, so in that way, it totally works as a mystery.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So we are at the point of the show where we talk about something else you might enjoy if you liked Millennium. Now, um, just uh, so that you're aware, this is available to see in uh, many places. Uh, I, in fact, uh, had my own copy because uh, this is a film that I enjoy this uh, so much, I, I I think you actually mentioned Toppy that you had one as well, or am I? Uh, no, I actually that was the last movie. Ha! But um, I think it's available yeah. in certain public forums.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I saw it on YouTube. There you mm-hmm. go. I said I said it. There you go. YouTube. Okay.
0: So it's free. Yes, for now. Uh, find it while it lasts. Anyways, our snack tray. Something else you might enjoy. So. Uh, I think that if you enjoy films about uh, dystopian futures like Millennium, you might enjoy a TV mini series that's based upon a Stephen King novel. This is a, a, a mini series from 1995. So it's about 6 years into the future for Millennium. It's a horror, mystery, sci-fi tale. The Langoliers, and it stars Dean Stockwell, who Chris Christopherson has uh, co-starred with, and uh, everybody's favorite immigrant, uh, Mr. Bronson Pinchot. And the story is most of the passengers on an airplane disappear, and the remainder land the plane in a mysteriously barren airport. Now, I will say this. Uh, it's a rare thing when somebody can play a bad character, and I mean bad as a villain, and mm-hmm. you love to hate them. Uh, you know, Bronze and Pinchot may not be an Academy Award winner, but I love to hate the character he plays in this movie. He's one of those OCD people, and his tick is he likes the sound of tearing paper. Okay. And uh, he gets his just desserts in the end, uh, folks, because someone uh, just has had enough of him. (laughs) Okay.
1: Uh, I know I saw part of it, and it was quite intriguing. Um, So that's a great recommendation. I'm going to recommend another time travel story. I I think this one's a little, well, a little bit easier to understand, and, and frankly, much better done. And a much better story that was told. And uh, it's a 1980 movie. It's uh, an American science fiction war film about a modern nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that travels through time to the day before December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was directed by Don Taylor, and it stars Kirk Douglas. Martin Sheen, James Ferentino, Catherine Ross, and Charles Durning, okay. and uh, it's 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 a doozy. Um, I I bet you it had a similar budget, maybe, probably, probably more of a budget than Millennium, but maybe not all that much more. But uh, the time travel, as the story is told, um comes out a little better, not so complicated, and I would say it has a satisfying ending. So, if you liked uh, all the time travel bidness of Millennium, you're going to like the final countdown, and that's what I'd recommend for you.
0: Oh, and you know, Charles Durning, he was um, everybody's favorite dad from um, Oh uh, Jody Foster's uh, movie Home for the Holidays yeah, among mm-hmm. many others of course. Alrighty so Toppy, we are out here at the lobby because it's almost time for Gertie to catch her ride and we're going to tell folks about what we're going to discuss next time which will be on Friday, July 21st so if you will go ahead and grab that bag of coins there and we'll figure out All what's right. coming up next Here you go Alrighty, go ahead and open that capsule, sir Alrighty <laughs> All <right>. Thank you <laughs> Thank you uh, It's a, Next
1: time, folks On Matinee Minutia It's a mid-80s action, drama, comedy Phew uh, It's directed by the writer Not the director It's directed by the writer of American Graffiti And Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom It stars the mom From Back to the Future uh, that's the uh, Ole Thompson and the future star of Helen Hunt's first movie, Tim Robbins. <laughs> You're not going to believe what we're going to do next, folks. It's about a sarcastic humanoid duck that's pulled from his homeworld to Earth, where he must stop an alien invasion with the help of a nerdy scientist and a struggling female rock singer. If you don't know what I'm next talking about next time, we're going
0: to do Howard
1: the duck. There you go.
0: Howard the duck. Wow. That's got Leah Thompson in it. You're saying, and that's the, the lady who is the mom in the back of the future movie. You were saying, wow. No. Okay. (laughs) Friday, July 21st. Now what, you know, what's special about this time of year, Toppy? We're, well you just said it we're in the final countdown there's just a couple of episodes left so we take our usual summer break and uh, you know we, we we catch our breaths and we come back after the kiddos are back in school so uh, you know catch the countdown and uh, as usual uh forthcoming or uh you know a little warning in advance well i shouldn't say warning but advance notice folks uh, we also have our annual season review on a forthcoming episode of the shy life with uh, mr paul chandler so stay tuned for that if you will all right sir if you would say goodnight in the ways of the old days of radio I shall, but let me just thank the chat room because
1: mm-hmm. we do this live, folks. And uh, some folks have turned out uh, to participate in our chat room. And that would be your hubby, Billy Sage. Thank you to Lamont Cranston from New York City. Mm-hmm. And thank you to our pal, Tommy Hashbrowns. Uh, thank you all for being here live in the chat room. And uh, as far as signing off, well, Good night, Gracie.
0: Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia.
1: Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month.
0: Go to matineeminutia.com. Click the YouTube icon for live video. Enter Discord or chat.
1: You can find our show anywhere you listen to
0: podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com Tweet us on Twitter at matineeminutia Find our group on Facebook Have an idea for a show?
1: Or why not let us know how we're doing?
0: Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com